Amen. Thank you, Brian. Well, you definitely may be seated and go ahead and uh, pick up your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ephesians, if you don't mind. Uh, Brian and the band came up here the other night. What was that, Thursday night, Brian, or Friday night? They were going to play a little bit. And uh, they got here at 6.30 and stayed till 2.30 in the morning, <laughs> jamming and uh, learning new songs and getting ready for, for the launch. And uh, so we appreciate all the, the hard work and dedication. And I don't think it was work for them, though. They really enjoyed uh, being up here and playing and, and worshiping God and learning new songs as well. So we appreciate all their, their dedication that goes into this. Well, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3 today. And we started off uh, just last week there with the first section of the book of Ephesians. And uh, just a quick review, it's always good as we're going through a book in the Bible to catch everyone up to kind of where we're at now. If you've just come in and, and you, you, we don't want you just to isolate this one passage out of the Bible, but to kind of see it as a whole. So as the um, Ephesians chapter 1 started off, we'll, we'll just review quickly that that our salvation is of God and that we are by nature objects of God's wrath, that we've sinned against God, we're spiritually dead, we can do nothing to right that ship, it is sinking, but God makes us alive, gives us grace, and through faith we believe in Jesus Christ and we are rescued, we're saved, and now we become part of the family of God. And as we progress through Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and on into 3, we see that this is not just a Jewish Messiah, that the Jews, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews, the Israelites, had been receiving the prophecies from God, from their prophets, that the Messiah, the anointed one from God, was going to come, that was going to bring about salvation. They had pieced together kind of wrongly that there would be a man. They didn't understand that it would be God and man. And they kind of thought that, that he would come and rule, right, in Israel, and that Israel would kick out the Romans, and they would become the top nation, the top dog in the world, and that would be the Messiah that would come. But that was not the case. This Messiah brought about ultimate and cosmic salvation from sin. It wasn't just from the Romans who were there, but it was salvation from the wrath of God, salvation from sin. As we go through Ephesians, we see that it was not just a Jewish Messiah, but it was for all people, non-exclusive, anyone in the world, no matter what nationality, no matter where you're born, it was for Jews and then all other people are considered Gentiles. So we see that here in chapter 3. If you have a Bible, it might have a little subtitle right there above chapter 3. It says, The Mystery of the Gospel Revealed. And what is that mystery? Well, the mystery of the gospel, the gospel, the good news of God. I taught a group this morning and just asked them a flat-out question, uh, what is the gospel? And uh, 20 students there, uh, younger students, but, but in a group of, of people who have been raised in church, right? Now, how many of you think got the answer right? And, and sadly, no, no one stepped up. No one got the answer right. And, and different answers were given, but the gospel was never presented in that group. So what are we supposed to do with something like that? What is the gospel? I mean, the gospel is the message from God, but it's not like one student might say it's the whole Bible. You know, it's, it's the good news, and that is correct. But what is the gospel? What are the ingredients of it? What are the details of this that make it such good news? And that's something we always need to keep in our mind and make sure that we do not forget, make sure our children do not forget, and that we continually reemphasize and reteach the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? And at the center of the gospel, it is Jesus Christ, that God has sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to put on flesh that incarnation, to live a life that we could not 
not live, to be absolutely sinless, to fulfill everything that God had commanded, something that we could not do, but yet he lays his life down on the cross. He dies for the sins of all believers of all time. He takes our sin on him. He gives us his righteous status. He takes our hell for us. He gives us heaven. Our sins are punished in him. We now receive the blessings of God and we're children of God. We're part of the family of God and that this Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and will be the final judge over all mankind. So the gospel is God's saving message that centers around Jesus Christ. So always keep that at the center of everything that we do as a church and even as a believer. What makes you a Christian? It's not just a lifestyle. It's the object of your faith, the one who saves you, which is Jesus Christ. So this gospel that I just paraphrased in a little nutshell version there has now been revealed. Okay, now they see. Earlier in the Old Testament, they kind of had to imagine a big jigsaw puzzle, a thousand pieces. And they were piecing it together and they kind of thought they had it figured out. But then Jesus arrives on the scene and his death, his life, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, now we see the mystery of God has been revealed. And we see that this is the gospel. This is the saving message. It is Jesus Christ. So Paul's making that point here in chapter 3. And also, if you look very quickly at 3 verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles, which odds are you and I are, uh, we're not of the Jewish nation, are fellow heirs. Uh, not fellow hares, all right? Fellow heirs, uh, co co uh, um, uh, inheritors, you might say. We're in this family line, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there is one Savior, and it is for the Jews, it is for the Gentiles alike. And this mystery is what Paul is all about making known now. He preaches to the Jews, right? God calls him to do so. He preaches to the Gentiles also. And God also commands him to preach to the kings, those in high authority, which in God's providential plan, he does so, not in a way that I'm um, sure he was thinking he would, But he would do so as he is held captive and as a prisoner, he preaches to them. All right, well, let's get moving. That kind of catches us up to date uh, just a little bit there. We're going to start at verse 14 today and just make it through verse 21. Not that much there, you would think. There's just a few passages there. And then I got to study and then I got preparing and I ended up having to shave several pages of notes off because there's actually so much there in these few verses. But let's read them through. Then we'll go back through and look what Paul is saying here. And look what God is saying through Paul. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Lord, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time we have together together tonight to study your word and to 
hear what Paul is teaching and, and preaching to the church at Ephesus. And that these words are not just his, that they are yours. And you have inspired, you've spoken through him. And that these words are to us as well tonight. May we uh, look and study and see the meaning to this. May our lives be shaped and changed as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look back at verse 14. Uh, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, What is the reason Paul is bowing his knees before the Father? I kind of covered that introduction, but this is one of those statements, for this reason, all right, if we start right there, we don't really understand what the reason was. And this is one of those statements that's kind of like a therefore. If you ever see the word therefore in the Bible, you should immediately ask the question, what is it therefore? And we see that in this statement as well. For this reason, well, what is that reason? The great mystery of the gospel, God's saving plan. He has now presented the anointed one, the only one, the only Messiah that would ever come has now been presented. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, atonement for sins is found in Jesus Christ. That it's not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. This has now been revealed. And what does Paul do? Uh, he immediately begins to praise. And he takes, takes a position of humility in his prayer. And as we see this, for, what, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, as I was reading this, it just came to mind, uh, what is the official posture for praying? I don't know if you think about that often. But in today's time, if I were to say let us pray, as I just did moments ago, uh, every single one of you, what did you do? Yeah, you bowed your heads and closed your eyes, right? And that's, that's kind of customary in our culture today. As we look back at the Bible, we actually don't, don't see that. It's kind of something new that's, that's, that's come on and is, is the standard way of praying now. But oftentimes, as we look back in the Bible and we witness people praying, they are uh, oftentimes sometimes standing, their hands are in the air, and they often look up at towards God, acknowledging some... Uh, a God is higher than them. So that would be a customary way to pray is to be looking up. But not always. Sometimes people are lying down, prostrate praying. Sometimes they're on their knees praying. And the point of this is that there's not a standard way of praying. So you pray however you want to. Oftentimes we look into Scripture that, that the body would reflect the type of prayer it was. And in here we see Paul is on his knees. It's, it's a humble position. Uh, it's a position of humility, acknowledging that God is so awesome, so powerful, and he has revealed himself in this way. The gospel has come. The gospel is for everyone. And he bows down and, and begins with this prayer, all right? So you don't have to, of course, bow down. You don't have to uh, bow your head and close your eyes. We think, and I mentioned this uh, a while back, but there's two uh, really good friends of mine who are theologians. One of them is a, an apologet, apologist that travels around and does a great job at that. Another guy's on staff at uh, Southern Seminary. And uh, a couple of years ago, I sent them a quick email. If I ever get stumped, and I do, I uh, said, hey, what about this? Uh, where did we acquire the position of prayer that we have now, head bowed, eyes closed? And uh, they each emailed me back in their own way said, I have no earthly idea. And one of them said, if you find out, tell me. I mean, it is, it is pretty unusual, but it does look like that it has come from, as Jesus was teaching on prayer, he said, don't, don't do your prayers in public for everyone to see, right? But he says, go into your closet, and there what is said in private, God will hear. And it's thought that that, that atmosphere of being isolated and, and putting the world away led to, if you're in public like we are now, we say, let's pray, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, and we try to 
separate the world. So we're not literally going into closets around the church, right, to pray, but we're kind of separating the world from us so we can concentrate. If you're like me, I'm highly distracted, so it does help to close your eyes and bow your head. So next week when I say let's pray, please do not stand up, put your hands in the air and stare at me. All right, so let's, let's stick with what we've got going here. Bow your heads, close your eyes, absolutely fine. But here's where this opens up. We see Paul is uh, bowing his knees, Uh, Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul begins this section by referring to God as Father. Uh, Again, there's so much actually in these few passages here, but that was a new concept as well. And who, of course, taught the disciples to pray in such a way? It is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And that we, as believers, as people who have been rescued, as people who have, we'll get to this in a moment, who have been not removed from the lineage here of just Adam. We have a new lineage in Christ that we're part of the family of God and that we can acknowledge him as father. And uh, some people take it a little possibly too far, saying the word like daddy or something a little bit more nicknameish to the word father. But, but the word father here in the Bible is a very esteemed position. It is relational, it is personal, but it's a very esteemed position as well. So that when we pray, we like Paul, even as Jesus, Jesus uh, recommends and, and gives us direction also, can absolutely pray uh, to God as our father because that is our true family. Our true family is that God is our Father, and we are in the family now of God. Uh, Let's look at this also as we see this in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you flip back over just to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, maybe one page over. You're going to have to flip on that one. I don't have it on the screen for us today. But chapter 2, verse 18 through 19 says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And you'll find that Paul often emphasizes this, that if you are a believer, your sins have been washed away. You have been removed from your natural position of the wrath of God for your sins, the sin you're born with, the sin that you commit, and you're in the family of God. So Paul emphasizes that there in chapter 2. He emphasizes it even here in this introduction to the second part of chapter 3. He, he's praying to the Father and acknowledging that he, as well as many other people, not just the Jews, are part of this family of God. Uh, quick question, are people naturally uh, born into the family of God by birth? Uh, today's society would definitely say that, oh yes, 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 you know, people are good enough and we deserve it, etc. And uh, we, we definitely deserve that, we can do that, and it's, it's more of a natural thing that our society will say that you just, yes, you are and you can and you have that ability to do so. But if we look at God's Word, uh, by nature, our natural uh, position, Ephesians was telling us just earlier, is not that we are, we are born receiving the blessings of God. But we're actually by nature receiving the wrath of God. And we would for all of eternity unless we are born, what? Born again, right? Um, John, I'll just read a few of these. John chapter 3, have it on the screen, 6 through 7. Remember the question we're answering. Are people naturally born into the family of God by birth? Uh, John chapter 3, verse 6 through 7. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
And the distinction here is natural versus supernatural. In order for a person to be saved, it is not just their natural inclination as they go through life, but there is a supernatural move. There is God sending the Holy Spirit, the conviction, the regeneration that, that, that equals salvation here. You must be born again. You can't just be a child in the Christian home and that count for you, right? Individually, we must be born again. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave their right to become children of God. So those who become children of God are those who believe in him. Verse 13, uh, again, this is a supernatural birth. It says, who were born not of blood, of the, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, we see this supernatural union that God rescues, God saves, you're in his family. And this is this, this, this beautiful thing of adopting us into his family. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but it is just a rescuing. It is, it is a saving and is purely on what? God's grace. And that's the title of this series that we're going through, God and Grace. Romans chapter 8. Uh, Verse 14 through 17 says exactly that. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right? Believers. We are in that family. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Again, this family is is emphasized over and over and over here by Paul, uh, by John earlier, by Jesus Christ here as well. We are in the family of God. He says... Uh, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, Paul is basically just saying here that, yes, this is our family. God is our Father. And this is what we are a part of. This mystery has been revealed and that through Jesus Christ, we have this ultimate unity. We covered it a couple of weeks ago, but this can cause uh, churches to come together. A group of the most eclectic people you could imagine can come together on Sunday for the purpose of worshiping and praising God and hearing from God's Word. You could have the supreme jock of the world Come in and and worship God with the supreme nerd of the world, all right? Because what they have in common is not the football, it's not the computer games or whatever might classify this person over here as someone would think of him as a nerd. What they come together as is what? Worshippers of God. They come together as Christ followers, believers in Christ. There is one way to God is through Jesus Christ. There is one salvation. There is one spirit. There's one family of God. So this is what we desire to have when we come together as the body of Christ. We don't want a room full of everyone who watches ESPN for 24 hours a day, all right? We want an eclectic group. We want people from all walks of life uh, that come together to worship God. And this is the unity that we have as believers. We're part of the family of God. We have that in common. We've been adopted by Him. He is our Heavenly Father. We are the children of God. We have been born again by Him, by grace. All right, verse 16. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, what according, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. All right. He is actually praying here that they become stronger in their inner being. And this is a beautiful prayer that that he is 
praying for them and something that we should pray for those we care about as well. I mean, we, we pray for people. If you look at church's prayer list, what you'll often find is uh, we, we often refer to it as the organ uh, recitation list, the organ list, because it's, it's just different people's physical organs that we are praying for as we go through this list, which is absolutely fine. Don't get me wrong. But, but one thing we often neglect is, is that's not the inner being that Paul is talking about here, praying for. He's not saying pray for your liver, pay, pray for your pancreas or whatever it might be. Those things are absolutely fine and we should pray for our physical health as well. But one thing we often overlook is this inner strength of praying. God, help me to pursue you more. God, help me to get through what I am going through right now. God, help me to stop this sin that so plagues my life. Help me to rise up. Give me strength on the inside to overcome, to be the person that you have called me to be. And that this is something that Paul was praying for them, that we should pray for each other, and that we should pray for ourselves as well. And I encourage you, even tomorrow, apply this immediately when you wake up or when you go to bed tonight in your prayer. Say, God, I pray for inner strength. Hey, uh, Paul refers to this same uh, vernacular terminology over in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. I think Paul is kind of a poet there and didn't know it, all right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And here he he gives us this, this split, this dichotomy, this division of outer and inner. All right? And and. I mean, it's, it's something that we, as we're young, we don't think about that often. Um, I, I wrote down, only the young or dumb think they're going to live forever. Uh, Paul here is bringing everyone back to the reality that this is not the case. Paul grimly puts it, look at verse 16, how does he describe this outer shell? He says, though our outer self is wasting away, all right, is how he describes it. However, for a believer, this outer shell is not everything. For a non-believer, it is everything. It is all there is. If they've denied God, they deny there is a Savior, they deny there is an eternal existence, sin, forgiveness in Jesus Christ, they look not to anything of God. They only look to themselves, and themselves is all they have. They put their self in the position of God. And they're all about their outer man, this shell that they are in. But we're here for such a short time. Years, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever it is, maybe over 100, but then what? Right? And that's what Paul is saying here. What is important is not the outside. What's important is what's going on truly in the inside. So he tells them here in 2 Corinthians, he says, don't lose heart. Yes, outwardly we are wasting away. And he definitely was beaten, flogged, whipped. Uh, he was outwardly definitely wasting away and probably looked very rough in his later years. But it didn't matter. Because inwardly he was being renewed day by day. I mean, think about that. If you spend your whole life only concerned about the outside, then then you've wasted your life. 
You're going to be somewhere for all of eternity. And what's most important is this inner being, this inner self, praying for spiritual strength and working on this relationship with God. So Paul is praying this for them here in Ephesians, that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And let us remind ourselves that this is the Spirit that we have. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 says, Having believed, you were marked with God's promised Holy Spirit. All right, It is a seal guaranteeing your inheritance that is to come. All believers have God's Holy Spirit in them. And Paul here is praying that that Spirit be strengthened inside of you, uh, more and more control in your life. All right, let's move on here. Um, A quick question here. Uh, Does the outer or the inner person get the most attention when we pray for others? Uh, We kind of covered that. I know on the church's standpoint, Often most of our prayer requests that we receive are for physical ailments. Again, absolutely fine. We definitely need to be praying for physical ailments as well and physical health. But we also need to be praying for spiritual health, right? Because that is the most important. Uh, do, we, do we pray for others regarding this? Do we pray for our family regarding this? And do we pray for ourselves uh, regarding this? Do we pray that God strengthen us on the inside? How do we strengthen our inner selves? Uh, one, Paul has given us a definite, easy answer to that question here. He says, pray. Seriously, pray that you would become a stronger Christian. Uh, many people, hopefully all of us as believers, desire to become a stronger Christian. And Paul is praying for that. And we should make this a point of our prayer as well, to pray, God, help me to become a stronger Christian. What are the practical things that we do to, to grow spiritually? Well, you're here. That, that's saying something. You've gotten your, your physical body up and you've put yourself in a place where you hopefully can be spiritually enriched by worshiping God, by singing along, by concentrating on the lyrics that the band is bringing. Worship is, of course, not just about instruments playing and one or two people singing. It, it, it's focusing on God and putting the distractions of the world away and considering the one that you're worshiping worthy of your praise. And so you've done that tonight. We're engaging in God's Word. We're hearing God's Word. These things are strengthening us from the inside. And not just to come here once a week, but to continue in these things as you leave from here, to worship God on a daily basis, to study God's Word on a daily basis, to fellowship with other believers as well. All right, verse 17. So that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot to cover right there, but look at verse 17 just for a moment. Something I just want to kind of cover quickly. Uh, That Christ may dwell... In your hearts through faith. Uh, Oftentimes we hear this. It's very common uh, word uses today that is meant to try to describe a person being saved. Uh, They might say something like, well, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart. And uh, this is a passage where that kind of is taken from. And as you can see, as we read this passage in context... To, to get that statement out of that and to tell a non-believer that that's what they need to do, we would be wrenching that verse out of context. Because you have to consider the audience. Who is Paul writing to? If we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, we see that 
<clears throat> that it is to believers, to people who are already saved. The word he uses here is to God's elect. All right, They've been saved. They are believers already. So that can't be what he's talking about here. He's not saying to addressing non-believers here, well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, it's not at all. So he's actually addressing this to believers. And, and even think about that just for a moment. This is one of my small soapboxes I get on quite often, but, but a terminology like that. If you were to approach someone who does not attend church, <coughs> uh, maybe a young person perhaps, and say, uh, have you asked Jesus into your heart? Think about all the ways that could be twisted in their head. Uh, have you presented the gospel when you presented that? Remember, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16 says. So does that statement, ask Jesus into your heart, is, is that enough? Is, the, is that the gospel? Is, is that enough for their faith to be put in this Jesus Christ? So we, we need to guard our words when we describe the gospel and make sure we're not putting something out there that's really describing not much at all. Uh, a young person who hears that statement uh, ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's what I'm wanting to do. And they would say, well, ask him, okay? Jesus, come into my heart. And, and we've kind of twisted the gospel into something that's very easy. Uh, we can get across very simple, but is that the gospel, right? The gospel is about Jesus Christ and what he did and always keeping him at the center of that and believing in and trusting in him as your Savior. So, so we need to guard our terminology, guard our words. And I just kind of thought of that as I read through this because this is one of the passages where that can kind of be wrenched out of context there. And if you use that terminology, oftentimes people do put a lot more information before it and behind it and end up explaining what the gospel is. But we do want to make sure that we... Always let people know what the gospel is. Make sure that their salvation is rooted in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done to bring about salvation and their belief in him. Um, let's carry on here. Um, rooted and grounded in love. We see this at the end of verse 17. Altogether, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, whose love are we talking about here? This is not the hippie love of the 60s, all right? Just love everybody and, and love, love, love. Love makes the world go round. But this is a much deeper love than that. This is a love that is based in and on you being loved by God, accepted into the family of God. By grace, you have been saved. You've done nothing to deserve this, yet he's made you alive. He's rescued you. He has saved you. God has bestowed his love, adopting love upon you, and brought you into that family. So this is a much higher love. It's not just, just, just the, the hippie love, all right? But this is, this is the ultimate love of God. And that us being rooted and grounded in this love, that we've been rescued, we've been saved. God has loved us now. He loves us. We're no longer an object of his wrath. We can rest in his love. So you go through life enjoying the love of God. This is the greatest thing you could ever possibly have in this world. That you can actually live life knowing that you are loved by God. Many Christians, including myself, we take this for granted. Um, we go through life and, and forget what it's like 
to go through life wondering, does God love me today? Does God hate me today? And I wonder if God will ever love me. And, and wondering and, and thinking on these things. But as you understand the gospel, and as you believe in Christ as your Savior, you, you have the love of God. And you will never be separated from that. And you live in that love. And, and from that love, it, it overflows into our human relationships as well. That a person who is a believer should love their spouse in a far greater, better, superior way than a non-believer. That's one of the reasons the Bible says do not be unequally yoked, but two believers in a marriage who are, who are trusting in God, who are rooted and grounded in love of God, their marriage is, of course, going to be stronger as well. And also, it should do, deal with our kids, right? A, a Christian parent should, that's rooted and grounded in love should show their kids a much higher, a far superior love than a non-believer. Uh, even you as a believer that's rooted and grounded in love at your workplace, in your neighborhoods, wherever you go, there should be a major difference. You've been rescued. You've been forgiven. God has bestowed his love upon you. You being rooted and grounded in God's love, there should be a wellspring coming out of you of love as well. All right. Uh, quick quote here. I have no re- human relationship can supply the love that can be found in Christ alone. That's definitely another sermon that could be preached. But no human relationship can supply the love that can be found in Christ alone. Many, many people look for love in all the wrong places. They're constantly looking somewhere on this earth for their love to be rooted and grounded in. And it leads to misery every single time. Relationship after relationship, job after job, hobby after hobby, addiction after addiction, looking for something, looking for love, looking for satisfaction, and they never can. They finally say, oh, this spouse is going to save me. This spouse is going to love me the way and fulfill everything. And they don't. No human can do such a thing. Even a child, a lot of parents will look to the love of a child to fulfill them. But that's not enough love. The only one that can truly supply the quantity of love that we need is God. And if you do not have a relationship with God, a saving relationship with Him, you'll never have a truly peaceful relationship on this earth. No human relationship can supply the love that can be found in Christ alone. Uh, You cannot love others as you should until you begin to grasp the love that God has for you because of Christ. Reflect on that statement if you don't mind. Read it there for yourself. It should be on the screen. You cannot love others as you should until you begin to grasp the love that God has for you because of Christ. When people try to find it in other human relationships, it leads to disaster. But as we're rooted and grounded in God's love, as we begin to comprehend what we deserved and what we got in His love for us, it changes everything. It changes our relationships, every relationship that we have. Verse 18, let's carry on. Rooted and grounded in God's love, verse 18 may have strength, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here is for them to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. One of my favorite theologians, F.F. Bruce, says this, However much one comes to know of the love of Christ... There is always more to know. It is inexhaustible. And that's what we see here. He says, though, he, he prays, part of this prayer is uh, that they may have strength to comprehend, verse 18, 
with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? It's inexhaustible. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the goodness of God. And here he's saying, focus on, meditate on, concentrate on, bask in this love and realize how big this love is. The God of the universe, the God who spoke, even though we have sinned against him, has graciously saved us, rescued us, bestowed his love on us. Get your mind around this grace of God and it changes everything. But this love of God is inexhaustible and we never can get our minds all the way around it. You see this in verse 19. He says, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And what does he just, he says, know something that is beyond knowable. Uh, What he's saying is know it as much as we possibly can. Get in here, study God's word, bask in his love, grow in this relationship, but understanding that you'll never understand all of his love that he has bestowed upon you fully. But the more that you understand it, the more everything is changing in your life. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Keep your spot there, but turn over. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. The moment I read this passage here in Ephesians, I was immediately in my mind taken over here to Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. It's very similar as Paul writes over here as he speaks of the love of God for those who are, have been rescued by Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by Him. They're in the family of God. And he talks of this love. And, and so many Christians struggle with that. Even people who have been rescued or put in the family of God, still struggle with what I call he loves me, he loves me not theology. Does God love me today? Or yes, he loves me today. No, he doesn't love me today. Or oh, I didn't do everything I needed to yesterday, so God doesn't love me that day. Oh, I did pretty good today. I think God loves me today. But it's just like flowers and petals, and they don't ever know, does God love me today? Does he not love me today? And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. And there are many believers, who Christians, I do believe, who have truly trusted in Christ as their Savior, who are believers, who struggle with this because they are not getting their theology from God's Word. But when we look uh, at this love that is inexhaustible, how big, how great, it's, it's humongous. We can never get around it. And it's much better than anything we can comprehend. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. I'm going to read through verse 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. Verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. If you don't have that highlighted already, at least highlight verse 38 and 39 in your Bible. Make a note of it. Look back on this when you're feeling like he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. No, rest in this. That flower is covered in all he loves me, all right? No matter what petal you pull, if you are in Christ, he loves you every single day. And there's nothing you can do to ever pull a he loves me not out of that flower. Look at this, verse 30, uh, 38. Uh, neither death nor life. So nothing in your life can separate you from the love of Christ. Or even in your death, you even have nothing to fear as well. No other supernatural powers as far as angels or demons. Nothing can separate you. It says, nor things present, nor things to come. So nothing you're doing now, if you're in Christ, can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing even to come or in the future. People often know, I wonder if I'll actually make it to heaven. You know, Nothing in your future is going to separate you if you're in Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, nor any powers. Here he kind of just gives a blanket statement. If I've missed something and you're thinking of something I have not mentioned, I'm going to include it in here, nor any powers. So nothing can separate you. Verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see that over here in Ephesians. He kind of picks up on that to, to comprehend How wonderful this love of God is. That we may be strengthened in it. Bask in it. Understand the love God has for us. Uh, Let's continue back to Ephesians. Flip back over if you don't mind. Chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Uh, This is a, a beautiful statement here. That this unity that we have in Christ it's it's actually we often think of of god only being there and out there but this this unity of salvation is is a bizarre complex it boggles our mind that it's not just god there but it is god here that that we have the indwelling of god's holy spirit in us when we are saved uh, I'm going to say this passage one more time. I can't get around it. But Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, listen closely. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That there is this imparting of God's Holy Spirit that connects you to God. He does not lose those who are His. And that His love is, is in us. It's part of us. That we are His. And it's a guarantee. It's of our inheritance that is to come. And God's Holy Spirit is at work within us. Philippians 2, verse 13 and 14. I'll just read this for you. Listen closely in, 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 in light of this passage of, of God working in us. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow. This is not about working for your salvation, but is that we are in the process of being saved as far as we will be fully rescued when this life is done, will be glorified. But this is God working in you, and God is both to will and to work for his good pleasure, for his God who works in you. This is beautiful to think on, that God has saved us, he has rescued us, he's imparted God's Holy, his Holy Spirit to us, and he is working within us as we do life here. 
Uh, it's, just, it's just all to the glory of God. God gets all the glory for our salvation, even the, the working in and through us as we go through life, but that we are also called in this process of life and doing life, sanctification, to work with and to continue to put away sin, right, and pursue Christ more and more. Uh, let me finish with verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A couple of quick questions. What is the main purpose of the church? It is to glorify God. That is why the church exists and that we are to do exactly that. To him be the glory. It's the sola deo gloria. To God be the glory alone. All right. What is the main purpose of the church at Pecan Creek? It absolutely should be this. This is our purpose. Oftentimes, churches will establish. New churches are planted. And, and I look at these churches that are planted, and I see their reason to exist. And I look at them like, my goodness, that's, that's not the right reason to, to have a church at all. Uh, all churches, our goal that should unite us all is to glorify God. What other reason do we have, right? Now, we can have secondary and tertiary and, and other reasons and other things that we emphasize on, but our main goal should be to glorify God. What is the main purpose of your life? The answer should be the same, to glorify God. What are you doing on a daily basis to glorify God? Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether it's at work, you glorify God. Uh, lastly, what will be our main purpose for all of eternity? It is the same, to glorify God. So God receives the glory for everything that we are doing. And we should constantly keep this in mind. Uh, may God receive the glory in the church at Pecan Creek as well. And as we look at this, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is indeed worthy. Let's pray. God, indeed, may you receive all the glory in the church uh, in this church that we meet at, Northview Baptist Church, and as well as the church that, that we're planting, the church at Pecan Creek. May we not just glorify you at church one day a week for one or two hours, but may we understand that we are to glorify you all day, throughout the day. Uh, everything that we can, everything that we do, may we do it for your glory. May we understand this love that you have for us. May we bask in it and just try to get our mind around it some, even though we can't know it all. But may we just bask in this, that nothing can separate us from your love, that you've bestowed it upon us, and you'll never remove it. That all who are in Christ, all who have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusted in him and him alone for their salvation, they've been rescued. And that love will never, ever go away. It will never get less. And may we understand and live in the wondrous love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.